This morning's reading will be from the ESV version. It can be found in Acts 2, verses 14 through 47. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness, with witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, 
everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Thank you, Natalie, for sharing from God's Word. May God bless the reading of His Word this morning. Amen. Amen. What a wonderful uh, sermon here uh, as uh, recorded by Luke, the Apostle, in regards to uh, the first uh, sermon preached there in Jerusalem, having uh, received the Spirit and also uh, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must remember that chapter 2, verses 14 through 47 aren't in isolation, that they are a part of the bigger narrative, and it's important that we understand how we got here, uh, because it helps us a little bit in our own uh, journey. Uh, We need to uh, remember, uh, first and foremost, that Jesus Christ had died and that He had risen, and that He had uh, revealed Himself for 40 days to the disciples and to many. Uh, upwards of 500 people. He had revealed himself to his brothers, and then he uh, takes uh, his disciples and likely 120, and there they are on the Mount of Olives. And he says to them, listen, I want you to remain in Jerusalem till the gift of the Spirit comes upon you. That's the 40th day, according to Acts 1, verse 3. What we find out is that for 10 days, because it was Pentecost, the 50th day after the Passover, that then uh, the Spirit comes upon the disciples. For 10 days, the disciples are praying earnestly. They're busy at prayer, seeking the Lord, and they are worshiping the Lord, according to uh, Luke chapter 27, where we discover these two realities. And it's out of that intimacy, it's out of that uh, seeking the Lord, that then the Spirit of God, comes on the fulfillment of the promise and tongues of fire appear on the disciples' heads. And the fullness of the Spirit is then poured out on the disciples. The disciples end up going out into a public place in Jerusalem, likely the temple, the outer court of the temple. And there these tongues of fire are, are on their heads, so to speak. They are speaking in tongues and everyone's understanding in their own language. And this is the sequence of events that bring us to this sermon. We need to remember, I'm strongly convicted of this in my own life, we need to remember that ministry comes out of relationship. Ministry comes out of intimacy with God. That's where ministry comes from. And as we seek the Lord and are filled with the Spirit of the living God, it's out of that that we then minister. And the evidence is... Uh, that they spoke in tongues. The evidence is the, 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 the appearance of fire over the head. The evidence is in the boldness of Peter's proclamation here. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll dive into this. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word here this morning. It's fitting for each one of us. I pray that you would redeem the time for your honor and for your glory, that you would speak in a profound way and that our hearts would be, as those who heard Peter preach 2,000 years ago, cut. And that we too would say in response to them, what shall we do? Oh God, have your way, we pray this morning. Speak uh, to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Peter, with the eleven, having received the fullness of the Spirit, speaking tongues, the fire is upon their heads. They head to, uh, in a sense, to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem, sorry. They, they head uh, to the temple stairs, the outer court. And there, there's a, a mass crowd gathered together. and A few things kind of run through my mind here a little bit as, as we uh, dive into this. I think of the crowd, first of all. This crowd, how God had generated this large crowd. 3,000 were added to the numbers that day. And that's not to say that everyone who was in the gathering responded to the gospel. So surely it would have been more than 3,000. I wonder what that would have been like. A crowd of 3,000, 4,000, we don't know. We, we know 3,000 responded. What would it have been like? How did they get their attention? What was God doing to get their attention? Well, the tongues certainly were a part of it. As everyone heard in their own language that which the disciples were uttering, God got their attention. The, the tongues of fire got their attention. These disciples that were gathered together got their attention. God will often use interesting things to get the attention of people around us, doesn't he? Sometimes God will use interesting things. Sometimes we don't like that. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've been in that situation where I'm talking to a friend, I'm, uh, I'm discussing something, you know, about spiritual terms and in, 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 you know, at the work site or, or wherever it may be, and all of a sudden everyone starts leaning in because my friend who's in opposition almost in a sense, tries to embarrass me and speak loudly about what I'm saying, and I'm trying to hush it down. You ever been there? Sometimes it's with family, right? Uh, those in our family that don't believe, and, and, and you're trying to make a point about something. You're, you're trying to stand for righteousness. You're doing it gently, kindly, and they're not responding in the same way. Uh, they draw in the crowd, and it's awkward at times. We resist. Uh, we we don't see God's hand in it yet. Yet God is often in these circumstances drawing people's attention in and filling, I would suggest, filling you and me so that we would speak the truth in the midst of that crowd because God's reach is beyond what we anticipate. I'm reminded of uh, my open air days when we would do open air preaching and, and uh, we took a team to New York. I've told about this on occasion, but not this specific story, I don't think. And so I had this young guy, his name was Chris, 16 years old. He was going to preach on, uh, in the Bronx there in New York City uh, in the open air. He had never led a Bible study, let alone preach the gospel on the streets. And here he was, he was going to proclaim <laughs> I'll never forget it. We were setting up and preparing, and there was these three guys that were causing trouble. And uh, my dad had always said, if you're ever uh, dealing with crowds, get a name. <laughs> when you got a name, it, it creates accountability. And so I remember going up to these three guys, what's your name? And they, oh, I'm so-and-so. I said, oh, I'm Scott. You ever heard the gospel? Never heard the gospel. Fantastic. You got to listen to this guy. It's going to be great. These guys were trouble. 
I remember looking down the street and my one youth was getting in trouble with another person. It was getting a little hairy. And, and Chris, he starts preaching and I'm trying to deal with that trouble over there. And sure enough, these three guys sitting on the windowsill of some store start yelling at Chris. <laughs> 16 years old, never preached before. And they start yelling at him. Well, the Bronx, everyone likes to see a good fight. And so when there's people yelling, it draws a crowd. But if you're the preacher, that's not what you like. <laughs> it's too intense. It's too difficult. And this small crowd of, you know, 8 or 10 or 12 people just ballooned. And all of a sudden, you couldn't get down the sidewalk. I'll never forget it. <laughs> I remember getting in the middle of that thing, and, oh, Lord, we're in trouble. We need to bring these kids home, or I'm going to be in big trouble with Mom. <laughs> it was fantastic. It's the Spirit of God got a hold of Chris, and... He preached the gospel and gave an invitation with much fear and trembling. I can still remember his voice was quaking as he preached the gospel. This shy, introverted guy, you'd never believe it, gives an invitation and people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, never get discouraged when a crowd is gathering around you, irregardless of the reasons Trust that the Lord is in it. Trust that the Lord is drawing people. Trust that the Lord is getting people's attention. Don't, don't shut it down. Don't get discouraged. Don't run away. But stand firm in the fullness of the Spirit of God who leads and directs. Notice that Peter, he's standing with the eleven. He's standing with the eleven. I love that. We talked about how as they gathered in the upper room and prayed, they were of one accord, one voice, as they worshiped and prayed uh, and praised God together. They were of one accord. It's so much easier to be unified in the context of the church. It's so much easier in, in many respects to be on the same page in prayer meeting or, or, or our gathered worship setting. It's easy. But in the public forum, oh, it's way more difficult, especially when someone is standing up and taking a stand. Can you imagine? Imagine being one of the 11, maybe John, the, uh, the disciple John, the beloved disciple, you know, that introvert. Standing there as Peter gets up among thousands of people and starts preaching, raising his voice. You'd imagine what it'd been like for Peter going, oh, I mean, John, oh no, no, Peter. Peter, I've heard you speak before. This is not going to go well. You shoot from the hip. I don't want to be associated with you. I love this. I love that they were of one accord. They, they trusted Peter, even though Peter wasn't really trustworthy. I mean, Peter had denied Christ three times, not 50 days earlier. He was a coward. He, he knew he was a coward. Even when a young servant girl challenged him and said, you're with that Jesus. He said, no, 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 I'm not. <laughs> now here he is. He's preaching. I wonder what it would have been like for Peter. They're of one accord. I, I, I can't imagine what it'd be like except to say, that is probably a common experience that you and I experience all the time when the fullness of the Spirit is leading and directing us. Uh, Paul says, Paul says, quench not the Spirit or grieve not the Spirit. Can you imagine what it would have been like for Peter? 
Peter, as the fullness of the Spirit comes upon him, as tongues of fire uh, uh, come upon him and his disciples, as, uh, as there's this, this fullness of the Spirit in the midst of community, all these people in the midst of Jerusalem who had seen Jesus Christ crucified. Can you imagine what it would have been like? Because the Spirit of God says, come on, Peter. Come on, I want you to preach. I can just picture it. No, no, there's too many people, Lord. No. I, I don't know. Grieving. Maybe that wasn't it. I mean, we don't know. But we can know the challenge. I can't, Lord. I'm a fisherman. I'm not a preacher. Yeah, okay, I've preached on occasion when Jesus sent us out two by two. Peter had every opportunity to quench and grieve the work of the Spirit. Lord, I, I can't do this. No way. I, I denied you 50 days ago. I'm not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy. Yeah. No, Lord, don't, don't ask me to do this. But Peter, he refuses to quench and grieve the work of the Spirit. He stands. He stands with the eleven and he lifts his voice. I'm, I'm sure it was quivering, yet but a bit. Trying to walk by faith and not by sight. Trying to learn to be filled with the Spirit and what that means and allow the Spirit of God to move in and through him. Trusting, trusting that the power of the Spirit that Jesus had spoken about in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 was what was playing out before his very eyes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what this would have been like? And so he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd. And he speaks to the crowd. And when he speaks to the crowd, he speaks about four major components. F.F. Bruce says that first of all, he announces the age of fulfillment. Secondly, he draws their attention to the account of the ministry of Jesus, his death and triumph. Thirdly, there's a citation of Old Testament scriptures whose fulfillment in these events proved Jesus to be the one in whom uh, he had declared he was, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And then fourthly, he calls them to repentance. Let's look at this sermon. First of all, the announcement of the age of fulfillment. He opens his mouth and he says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my word. For those people, they are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. No, it's nine o'clock in the morning, folks. They're not drunk. This is not the issue. No, they are filled with the Spirit. And then he begins by explaining that it is thus the day of the Lord. In Joel chapter 2, uh, sorry, not Joel chapter 2, but yes, Joel chapter 2, but also Acts chapter 2, he begins by saying in verse 17, In the last days it shall be God, uh, it shall be, God declares, and then he goes on to explain what it shall be. In other words, it's an announcement of the age of fulfillment. That's what uh, G, um, 
Peter is doing. He's establishing in his sermon amongst the men of Israel the reality that the fullness of the Spirit is coming. It is now the last days. Jesus has ushered in the last days. The days in which we have been anticipating, the days in which we have been searching for, these last days are now here. That's what Peter does first and foremost. Peter understands this as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11, that the prophets of old had been waiting for this. They were searching for the coming Messiah. It's come, is what he's saying. And thus begins the beginning of his sermon. Uh, secondly, he notes that he, he, he uh, incorporates not just the, uh, I'm sorry, not just the, uh, the last days, but he also incorporates the fulfillment of the Old Testament. These are prophetic truths, is what uh, Peter is pointing to. He, he points to Joel, and he helps us understand how Joel is being fulfilled even in this day. Later on, he points to David, and he explains how David is being fulfilled even in this day. These are fulfillments of the prophecies of the Old Testament, often included in sermons, especially with the Jewish people. And so, Peter is following this pattern of declaration. The people are listening. They're listening to his every word. They're processing the truth that he's declaring. And prophecy is such an important piece of the picture here. Friends, we need to realize that the book that we read is not just a, uh, a book of antiquity that is reliable. If you come on Tuesday night when Paul and I will have an opportunity to share a biblical response to cultural worldview, we're going to defend the historical reliability of the Bible. That's one of the goals. But it's not just a book of antiquity. It's more than that. It's a spiritual book. And how do we know that it has spiritual relevance in our day? Except that the prophecies that have been fulfilled are the evidence that it's not just a historically reliable book. It's also a book that has spiritual implications. Friends, we, we can't even predict the weather three days from now, let alone being able to predict the time and place or the birth and city of our Lord and, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it was Isaiah, who 700 years prior to uh, the birth of the Messiah, predicted that Bethlehem would still exist, this small community. And it would be from Bethlehem that the Messiah would come forth. These prophecies that uh, uh, Peter are pointing to are evidence. It's the backdrop, it's the story, it's the foundation by which the nation of Israel are going to soon respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, Peter points to the fact of who Jesus is. He goes on to say this, men of Israel in verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. I love where the faith of Christianity started. It started in the very community that, that had crucified Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Well, it's critical now because of the eyewitnesses of the life and times of Jesus were all present in the midst uh, of, of the crucifixion. See, Peter's speaking to people who were there. You see, they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was a part of their uh, custom. It was a part of their, their rhythm of life. They, they had come to Jerusalem for Passover and now... 
they're there for the Pentecost, the Feast of the Pentecost. This was a part of the rhythm of life. And so so, uh, Peter is speaking to the crowd who would have saw Jesus crucified. Uh, They might have been a part of the crowd who, who had yelled, crucify him, crucify him. This is the crowd. Maybe, maybe they were there when Jesus walked by them carrying his cross. Uh, Maybe they insulted Jesus, spat on him, rejected him. This is the crowd. This is the crowd that Peter is speaking to. It's the very people who had witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus more than that. More than that, they're the crowd who had been watching Jesus and his ministry. Over a three-year span, they would have heard of Jesus and the things that he had done. They they would have ran into people who who would attest to the the truths of Jesus' miracles. Surely they, they may have been a part of his teaching when many had gathered and Jesus had compassion on him. Jesus didn't serve and work in privacy. No, he worked in the public field. He stood before the uh, Pharisees of the day and, and, and stood against them. Jesus didn't work in privacy. No, he worked in the public. And now Peter's calling the people to account. He's saying, remember, you were witnesses of God's mighty works and wonders and signs that, that God did through him and in him. Luke notes that most people, most people generally agreed that God had visited his people through Jesus Christ the Lord in chapter 7, verse 16. And now Peter's bringing their attention to that. He's reminding them of Jesus, this this man who served and lived among them, this man in whom they delivered up. In verse 23, Peter says, you delivered him up. You, 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 You crucified him. You killed him. He was killed at the hands of lawless men. I I can't imagine the boldness of Peter to look this large crowd in the eye and to declare, listen, listen, you crucified him. But there would have been no better person than Peter. Isn't that true? I, I mean, Peter denied him. Peter denied him. When a young slave girl said to him, you know, aren't you with him? He said, no, I'm not. Three times he denied him. He's as guilty as those in whom he proclaims to friends. We are too. We're guilty. Each one of us are guilty. We're guilty because we've sinned. We've gone our own way. We're guilty because of our selfishness, because of our arrogance and our pride that we think we know better. We're guilty of killing the Christ, each one of us, you and me. If we're honest with ourselves, we would say, yes, we've sinned. And and therefore, we deserve death, separation, from Almighty God. See, Peter, Peter doesn't pull any punches. He tells the truth. Under the fullness of the Spirit of God, he, he stands on the steps. 50 days after the Savior 
had died and risen, and he calls them out. Notice that he speaks of the define, uh, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was lawless men. It was Romans that executed Jesus. It was the soldiers and Pilate. But it was more than that, wasn't it? It was Jewish leaders, priests, that handed him over to the Roman authority. It was Judas who, who went and led those Roman, uh, uh, I'm sorry, those uh, soldiers of the temple to Jesus and kissed him and betrayed him. It was the disciples who deserted him. It was Jesus who denied him three times. And yet, and yet it was the plan of God. Paul says in Romans 8.32 that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up freely. It was God's divine purpose, revealed through the prophets of old, Isaiah, and those who had declared that the Messiah would suffer. This was no surprise for God. Yet, and yet even though in God's sovereignty he allowed these things to happen, it in no way diminishes the guilt of the people involved. But, but it does point to the fact that there's forgiveness of sin and forgiveness of uh, guilt and that God is willing. Peter knew that and he drove home the point that the lostness of man is what drove people to uh, nail Jesus to the cross. It was pride and arrogance. It was an unwillingness to submit to the plan and the heart of God. The question, the question that we can't answer is where does God's sovereignty and human responsibility meet or exchange? A few weeks ago, we were, uh, I was at, with Paul at a conference with uh, Ravi Zacharias, and the question came forward about the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of men. Now, I love how Ravi Zacharias answered it. He says, how do we know where God's uh, sovereignty and man's responsibility meet? Can we determine that? He said it would be the equivalent of trying to understand where the, uh, the deity of Jesus Christ is found in the fullness of God and the fullness of man and where they meet. Where do we define that? In so many ways, the sovereignty of God and the uh, responsibility of, of people is a paradox. It's something we can't wrap our minds around. We, we can't completely understand. For to deny the sovereignty of God is to deny God himself. And yet God, God truly shows and indicates, even through the midst of Peter's preaching, that humanity is responsible for their actions. Somewhere, somewhere God's sovereignty is never threatened by the responsibility of man, the freedom to choose. For the invitation of Peter, and even in the midst of this sermon, is an authentic invitation that God gives through Peter to people to respond. God raised him up, Peter goes on to say, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, God is still central and so too is his sovereignty as Peter is noting here. It was God who raised Jesus up. The cross was not the final word. The abyss can, be no more, uh, can no more hold the Redeemer than a pregnant woman can hold a child in her womb. That's what Peter's saying. The resurrection is the emphatic statement that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is risen. God raised him up in his sovereignty. 
And thus the quotes of David again, uh, and an explanation of uh, David and, and how this ties into the Old Testament and the foreknowledge of God begins. Peter goes on to say this, David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. You see, the psalm isn't about David and, the, and his life, but rather it's about the coming Messiah. Further proof that Jesus was the Messiah. Peter continues his argument by pointing to the Psalms, the Old Testament. He goes on to say as he wraps up his sermon, all this the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus in whom you've crucified. Now when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? What a moment of hopelessness that must have been realized when the hearers heard that they had crucified the Christ, the Messiah, the coming King of Kings. What moments of hopelessness and utter conviction must have overcome the crowd when they understood that they were guilty. What must we do? What must we do? Peter responds to them and says, first of all, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First Peter says you must repent. Friends, we must repent. What does repentance mean? It's when we come to terms with our own brokenness, when we come to terms that we can't do this thing, that we are utterly, desperately in need of being born again. Ravi Zacharias says that, that we aren't bad people becoming good. No, we are dead people in desperate need of coming alive. That's what we need. Friends, have you repented from your sins, from your way of life? Have you repented from your arrogance, your selfishness? Have you repented and said, God, I need you? Have you, have you stopped striving? Have you, have you repented from your wicked ways? Friends, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the sorcerer in Acts uh, chapter 8, I think it is, or, or 9, he, he responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the scriptures say that he believed and was baptized, but he thought that he could buy the Holy Spirit. And so he starts to make a plea bargain with, with, with uh, the apostles. Hey, I want to buy the Spirit. Peter looks at him and says, Simon, you better repent. Friends, have you repented? Have you repented? Have you turned from your wicked ways? Have you seen your desperate need for God? Have you turned? Have you repented? Friends, we, we need to repent. We, we, we need to repent. If we don't repent, friends, we're striving. It's all about us. We miss the core of the gospel. Have you repented? Secondly, he says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now, now that doesn't mean that baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. No, no, no that's, that's not what the text is implying here. It's not what the fullness of scriptures teach. No, they're, they're synonymous in the sense that as we repent and put our trust in Jesus Christ, there's an outward uh, example of what's happening inwards. It's the act of baptism. Uh, 
And as we are baptized, we're declaring to all people that Jesus Christ is the one who has forgiven our sins. It's a declaration of what Jesus has done. Could you imagine what this would have been like? All these people gathered together, Peter and the 11, standing on the steps, and he says to them, listen, you have to repent. Saying you have to be baptized, every one of you. Listen, baptism isn't a graduation ceremony. It's not like you believe and then, and then you got to kind of live for a long time and make sure you got it and you're really in and then you get baptized when you're serious. No! We are to believe and then we are to be baptized. That is the pattern of Scripture time and time again. Friends, if you've never been baptized, listen to me, if you've never been baptized, don't make excuses. Don't make excuses. Get baptized. The Lord Jesus Christ commands that you are to be baptized. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, quit doing the mental gymnastics as to why you shouldn't and just receive the invitation to get baptized. Peter says to them, repent. Uh, be baptized. I, I, I can't even imagine about the logistical challenge of 3,000 people getting baptized in one day. I, I can't comprehend. Maybe it was over a few days. I, I can't imagine what the community of Jerusalem would have thought when all these people are getting baptized. I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. But the scriptures say, that 3,000 souls were added and baptized. 3,000 received his word and were baptized. Friends, if you haven't been baptized, I can't strongly say it enough that you need to get baptized. It, you just need to. And then thirdly, it says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the moment that we believe and receive, the moment that we repent and turn to Christ, we are to be baptized. And, and, and the truth is, Ephesians says that the Spirit of the living God comes and seals us. Seals us. Dwells within us, in essence. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit, and He gives us the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In essence, we need to allow the Spirit of the living God to work in us and through us. As I've already talked about, we've got to resist the temptation to grieve the Spirit. We've got to resist the temptation to quench the Spirit. We've got to live in submission moment by moment and ask to be filled with the Spirit. That we would have power and boldness to do what we can't do on our own. Peter assures them, you will receive the Spirit. What a wonderful and beautiful thing. It says that after the preaching, those who received his word were baptized and there were added about 3,000 souls. I wonder what that would have been like. I mean, this is so upside down, isn't it? Especially in our Western worldview, in our Western church. I struggle to imagine 10 people coming to faith through one sermon. Lord, forgive me. 
I don't know if I'd ever stand out in a public forum like this and preach to such a great and mass crowd spontaneously. Oh, I want to. I want to be yielded to the work of the Spirit. I want to trust that He knows what He's doing. I, I want to obey, irregardless of the consequences. In a moment, in an instant, 3,000 people believed. It's hard to argue with the word, but often when people respond, I wonder, did they really? How could they? You know, they, 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 they didn't even know. I mean, how could they? In a, that just can't. Hmm, shame on me. 3,000. 3,000 souls added to the number that day. What a discipleship nightmare, eh? Can you imagine? And yet, look what the next verse says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayers. I love this. They... They who had believed devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. Friends, have you devoted yourself to the scriptures and to God's word? Have you? The impact of God's word on your life is so critical and important. Every day you need to get into God's word, I'm telling you. Every day, not out of legalism, but because you hear the invitation of the Spirit. Come and be with me. Come. Come and spend time with me. You hear the invitation of the Spirit to come and get into God's Word. There's something supernatural about God's Word. And no other book, no other sermon preached can do what God's Word can do in your life when you spend time every day devoted to God and His Word. When you, when you pray and seek Him. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship. Friends, we are not to carry the journey alone. We are not to carry the burden alone. We need to get together. I love that the worship team are are having a bonfire. I want to crash it. (laughs) Why? Community. This is so important. I love the young adults are, are getting together this weekend. Why? It's important to live life together, not in isolation. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And it takes commitment to the breaking of bread, remembering what Jesus Christ did. We are saved. We serve because of the cross, because of the resurrection. And to prayers, to worship, the text goes on to say, prayer and worship, gathering together, Seeking his face. Come tonight and pray with the house of prayer. Make it a priority. Not because you have to, but because you can. Because the spirit of the living God prompts you and invites you. Don't quench or grieve. And God, turn the world upside down. Let's stand together. Friends, where are you? Where are you this day? Have you repented? Have you? What things are in your life that God is saying, it's got to go. It's time. Enough is enough. Have you been baptized? If you haven't, 
Would you hear the, hear the invitation of Jesus who says, be baptized, all of you. Friends, maybe you're sealed with the spirit of the living God, but you've never been filled. Life and ministry, moment by moment, has been you doing your best. Wisdom won't cut it. Look at the life of Solomon, the wisest man to ever live. Had more wives and conquered. His life was a shambles because of wisdom. Not because of wisdom, but wisdom wasn't enough. You need the Spirit. Friends, have you been filled with the Spirit? Are you devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching? Honestly, truthfully, are you making God's Word a priority? Is fellowship a priority? Is prayer and worship a priority? Or is it more an issue of convenience? And so, Lord, you know our hearts. Would you come and speak? Would you cut to the heart of the issue in our personal lives as you did with those 2,000 years ago? And may we surrender all and say as they did, what must we do? And for each one of us, it may be a bit different. But we anticipate and trust that the Spirit will speak through the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.